0: story from the traditional perspective what's the traditional perspective well it's the perspective that most conservative Christians use to interpret the creation story so if you believe in a young earth the way I'm going to interpret it, interpret Genesis chapter 1 is going to be very familiar to you because it's what you've been taught all of your life in Sunday school now those of you who believe in the gap theory what I'm going to be teaching is going to be the very same thing With one exception. Instead of believing that the earth is young, you believe that the earth is old. Because there's a gap in time between verses 1 and 2 in Genesis chapter 1. And the reason there's a gap is because the original earth that was created in verse 1 was destroyed by God as a result of divine judgment. When Lucifer rebelled against God, God destroyed the earth with the great flood. Much like the flood at Noah's time, and the earth became without form and void. And that's in verse 2. And so, if you believe in the gap theory, you believe that there was a gap of time between those two verses. So, you're thinking, well, how in the world can I agree with what you're going to teach tonight? Well, you need to understand that from verse 3 on, the story of how God created the earth is the very same thing that you've been taught with one exception. Instead of believing that God created the earth this way, you believe that God recreated the earth this way. Does that make sense? So my point is this. From verse 3 on, you interpret Genesis chapter 1 the same way as those who believe in a young earth. Again, the only difference is you believe that the story in Genesis chapter 1 is the story of the recreation of the earth rather than the creation of the earth. But from verse 3 on, the interpretation is the very same. Does that make sense? And what about those who believe in the Genesis big gap theory? Well, they also interpret Genesis chapter 1 the very same with one exception. They apply the law of relativity to the story. In other words, they believe that time is relative because time is being viewed from different perspectives in the universe. So from God's perspective in the universe, verse, looking forward into time, creation only took six days. But from our perspective in the universe, looking back in time, Creation took about 16 billion years. But this is what I want you to grasp. Generally speaking, from verse 3 on, the interpretation of the creation story is basically the same for all three groups. Now, there are those that would argue with me about that. But I want you to notice, as we go through each verse, explaining what what happened on each day of creation... Those who believe in the young earth are going to be nodding in agreement. Yep, yep, that's just the way it happened. Those who believe in the gap theory are going to also be nodding in agreement. Yeah, yep, that's exactly the way it happened. And those who believe in the Genesis Big Bang Theory are going to nod their heads too. Yeah, yep, that's what happened. Why? Why? Because generally speaking, we all agree on the sequence of events that occurred from verse 3 on. And we all agree on the basic interpretation of those events. Does that make sense? That's why I taught all three theories. Because instead of having this disunity, I wanted to come in and have unity and show you. That with the exception of a few small things, when we get into the days of creation which we're doing tonight... We all basically believe the very same thing if you believe the Bible. Does that make sense? Good. So let's jump into the creation story. Verses 3, 4, and 5 cover what happened on the first day. So go ahead and turn there and just follow along with me as I read these verses. They're going to come up on the screen, or you can go ahead and, and open in your Bibles and take notes in the margin. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, theologians refer to this as creation by fiat. Now, that's kind of bad, and the reason why I say that's kind of bad is we, d- we pronounce it differently. Fiat is actually a Latin word, and if you pronounced it correctly, it would be fiat, but we don't do that in America. So, they refer to it as creation by fiat. Fiat, as I said, is a Latin word, and it means one, let it be done, or two, to order, or three, proclamation. Proclamation. So basically, God ordered light to appear, and it appeared. Now, it only makes sense that light was the very first thing that was created. Otherwise, everything else would have been created in darkness. So light, in a sense, was the prerequisite for everything else. Now, there's been a lot of debate as to exactly what this light was because the sun, the moon, and the stars are not even mentioned until the fourth day. In fact, what I'm going to do right now is we're going to jump ahead to day four, and then we're going to come back to the first day. Look at verse number 16, if you would. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. Now, what is the greater light that governs the day? The sun. That's not too hard. Not a trick question. What is the lesser light that governs the night? The moon. So verse number 16 is saying, That on the fourth day, God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. So if the sun, moon, and stars weren't made into the fourth day, then what was the light that God created on the first day? Anyone? Well, believe it or not, it was the sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Allen. I thought it said in verse number 16... That God didn't make the sun, the stars, and the moon until the fourth days. Well, I'm going to show you why I say that the light that was created was the sun, the moon, and the stars when we get to the fourth day. Right now, I just want you to trust me. Can you do that? And I promise that I'll show you how I know that the light was the sun, the moon, and the stars when we get to day four. Now, remember... On Wednesday nights, you're not at church. On Wednesday nights, you're at Bible college. So in Bible college, we go a little bit deeper. We're going to go a little bit deeper into the meaning of the words and also the syntax of the words. And I will be able to prove to you when we get to day four what I just said. Now, let's go back to day one and see what else happened on the, day, on the first day. Look at verse four. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from darkness. Now, I want you to underline the last part of that verse. God divided the light from darkness. Now, I want you to notice that darkness was not eliminated. I don't know why, but sometimes when we read along, there are certain things that we just automatically think of. There are certain things that we assume, and we shouldn't do that because that's not what the Word says. God divided the light from darkness but darkness was not eliminated it eliminated it was only separated from the light giving us a period of daytime and a period of nighttime look at verse number 5 and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and the evening and the morning were the first day so this tells us that the earth began rotating on its axis on the very first day and it tells us that there was a main source of light on one side and not on the other. So as the earth rotated, one side of the earth would have light and the other darkness. But it was constantly rotating. A period of light, a period of darkness. A period of light, a period of darkness. And God called the light day and he called the night of dark, or the time of darkness night. So now that the earth is rotating on its axis, we have a way to measure time on the earth. From the very first day, all of a sudden, in the way that God created this, we now have a way to measure time on the earth. In fact, all of our major measurements of time are based on astronomy with one exception. Our day is based on the time that it takes the earth to rotate once on its axis. That's why every 24 hours you're going to have a period of light and a period of darkness. But our day is basically the time it takes our Earth to rotate once on its axis. The year is based on the time it takes our Earth to orbit around the sun. 365 and whatever days. Our months are based on the orbit of the moon. The only major measurement of time that's not based on astronomy is the week. That's right. The week is not an astronomical measurement of time. It's based on God's timetable. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, and let's see what it says after the six days of creation. Notice what it says beginning in verse 2 On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So we rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all of his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And what's interesting is we find out later that God comes along and he says we're to have a Sabbath. There's going to be six days of work and then a Sabbath. And then we start all over again. Six days of work and a Sabbath. So it was God who instituted the week. But this week is not based upon our solar system. It's not based on any type of astronomical measurement of time. But every other major measurement of time is based upon that. Now, turn back to verse number 5 and let me show you one more thing before we move on to day 2. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Underline the word evening, if you would. That word is translated from the Hebrew word Ereb, which means sunset. Now, because of the order in which this is stated, the Jews believe that a day ends at sunset and a new one begins. So the Jews reckon a day from sunset to sunset based upon Genesis chapter 1, verse number 5. So if you ever go to Israel, you'll notice that everyone is rushing on Friday. And all of a sudden, when the sun goes down, everything just kind of stops. You walk outside of your room, you think, I'm going to go get some ice. The sun's gone down, it's Friday night, I'm going to go out. You hit the door on the elevator, and nothing happens. And then about 10 minutes later, it finally opens up. So you get inside the elevator, you press the button, but it doesn't matter. None of the buttons are working. The elevator stops on every floor and opens, and it's programmed to do that. Why? Because they're not allowed to work on the Sabbath and pressing a button on the elevator is work. So they've programmed all of their elevators to be able to open and close so no one has to work on the Sabbath. And then you go out and people aren't doing anything and no one's around. Why is that? Because as soon as the sun goes down, a new day begins. And so on Friday night, as soon as that sun goes down on Friday night, the Sabbath begins. Begins, And that's when they begin their Sabbath meal. Now on Saturday, as soon as the sun sets, well, Sabbath is over. It's Saturday night. No, 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 no. A new day has begun. Now we don't do that. We we start our days at midnight. So it goes from midnight to midnight. But the Jews don't. And they do this based upon Genesis chapter 1, verse number 5. It's the way that God reckoned time. It's the way they're going to reckon time. Now let's look at day number 2. Turn to verses 6, 7, and 8. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, I'm going to show you an easy way to be able to interpret this, but let's go a little bit deeper first, and then we're going to use our whiteboard so you'll understand what this is saying. I want you to remember that verse 2 told us that the earth was void or, or was without form and void. In other words, it was a wasteland, and it was void of inhabitants. And darkness covered the entire earth. So God had to make the earth suitable for life. In other words, habitable. So on the first day, what did God do? God created light. And he separated the light from darkness. So the next logical step is to create an oxygen atmosphere in which plants, animals, and man can live. So on the second day, God created an atmosphere conducive for life. Now, this was a very unique atmosphere. And let me explain why I say that. I want you to underline the word firmament. It's translated from the Hebrew word rakia. Rakia literally means expanse or to spread out. It's what we think of as space. If I was to tell everyone in here, and you're already doing that, but if I was to tell everyone in here, let's spread out. What I'm really saying is let's make more space between us. And that's what this word rakia means. It means to spread out. It means to make space. Now, most scholars believe that in this context it means air space or space with oxygen because God refers to the space as heaven in verse number 8. So in this context, rakia means space consisting of air or consisting of oxygen. Now, notice that verses 6 and 7 tell us that the firmament... Or this space separated the waters. Let's read that again. And God said, let there be a firmament. In other words, let there be space. A space of air in the middle of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. He made the space. And he divided the waters which were under the space from the waters which were above the space, and it was so. So what you've got is you've got this air space that separates the water on the earth from the water above the earth. Is everyone completely lost? I'm going to make it simple in just a minute. Just stick with me. In other words, you've got an atmosphere of oxygen surrounding the earth, and above that oxygen is a canopy of water probably more probability, water vapor. Because the space that God created divided the waters. In fact, let me, if you don't mind, draw you a little picture. Let's say that this is the earth. Now, verse number 2 tells us, we're going to find out a little bit later, we see here that water covered the entire earth. There was not any dry land. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw this to symbolize water on the outside of the earth does that look like water looks more like a kid's rendition of hair on a person right but anyways let's suppose that that is water so the bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and then he tells in verse number two that the earth was without form and void and darkness covered it. But it also tells us that there was water completely around it. And there was no dry land. So guess what God did? God said, let there be a firmament. Raqia. Let there be space. And he said, let this space be in the middle or separate, be in the middle of the water. So right here in the middle of the water, I'm trying to do a good job doing that does that make can, can you see that space that i just erased along there so all of a sudden what god did is he said i want there to be space in the middle of the water so half of the water is still surrounding the earth but the other half he had this space come in and push it further and further out you still got A little bit of water around it, but now all of a sudden, this firmament is going to divide the waters. It's going to push that water out, and now half of the water that had been around the earth is now out here, and you've got space between the two waters. Is everyone with me? That's why I said this was a unique atmosphere. It's not something we see today. These verses are describing an earth that is surrounded by a water canopy, by water vapor. You see, in our atmosphere, we actually have a troposphere, the stratosphere, and the mesosphere. The troposphere actually goes up 11 miles high. So, basically, on our earth today, if we were to turn this around, on our earth today, we're going to have three different ones, atmosphere. From the earth out to the troposphere is about 11 miles. And then we get to the second part of what we consider our atmosphere, which is the stratosphere. It goes from about 11 miles to 30 miles. Does that make sense? So, we'll say 11 to 30, and this is 11, And then we have the mesosphere. That goes from about 30 miles to 50 miles that's around our earth. You didn't realize when we went to the book of Genesis that you were going to learn so much science, did you? Are you smarter than a fifth grader? All right. Now, here's what's interesting. You had all of this water around. But what God did was he said, let there be a firmament. Let there be space. And I want this space to be in the middle of the waters that's surrounding the earth. And then he said, let's let that firmament divide the waters that's above it from the waters that's below it. And all of a sudden, this is our atmosphere, but the water that's above it becomes water vapor, and most scholars believe it was in our stratosphere. Now, this was... This great atmosphere that was very conducive to life. Because in this case, we have an ideal situation for sustaining life. As an example, with this water vapor that he's describing here in Genesis, the first chapter, it acts like a global greenhouse. It maintains a warm, uniform temperature all over the earth. There are no cold temperatures anywhere. There is not a North Pole that's freezing. There is not a South Pole that's freezing. Everywhere on the earth is like this huge greenhouse, and so you can have lush vegetation everywhere. The whole earth is nice. With this uniform temperature, great air masses are inhibited. Therefore, you don't have any of these great wind storms or these tropical storms, these hurricanes, tornadoes, all of these things we see. And with no global air circulation, there's not going to be any rain. Well, how are we going to come in here and, 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 and water everything? Well, the planet would maintain this comfortable uniform humidity by means of a daily local evaporation and condensation. And this happens each day-night cycle. So you wake up in the morning and everything is watered. This nice humidity is there. And everything can be lush all over the earth. There would be this vegetation all over the world with no, no deserts, no ice caps. And then this vapor canopy also filters out much of the dangerous ultraviolet rays from the sun. Contributing to greater health. And also what? What? Longevity. Isn't it amazing we go back into the Old Testament and we see during this period before Noah, these men were living seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. How could they do that? Well, they didn't reckon day. No, no, no. They reckon days the same way. I told Lisa, what could you accomplish in a lifetime of seven 800, 900 years. But you see with this water vapor out here, when it took the waters and the space separated, it made this water vapor out here, and it protected the earth, had this global greenhouse. You've got all these people living long, uh, a long time. Now, again, most conservative scholars believe that precipitation from this water vapor, from this water canopy, is what caused the great flood in Noah's time. It had never rained before then. Now, can you imagine? Here's Noah, and we're going to kind of study this when we get to the great events. and We get to Noah's flood. Here God tells him to build an ark, and everyone thinks he's nuts. Man, the way things are are watered is the dew comes up, and you tell us that rain's going to come. You're crazy, man. And he has 80 years to preach this. 80 years to build this ark. And to get this thing going. And everyone thinks he's not. But the majority of scholars believe that it was the precipitation from this water vapor that actually caused the flood in Noah's time. In other words, the rain that lasted for 40 days and 40 nights came from this water vapor that surrounded the earth. Now, do we have this water vapor today? No, we don't. But this water canopy is what I meant by a unique situation. After the flood of Noah, that's no longer there. Now what we have is the things that we talked about. Troposphere, stratosphere, and mesosphere. But not in the original creation. Now, as I said in verse number 8, God referred to the firmament as what? Not space. We refer to it as space. Rakia. What did he refer to it as? Heaven. He referred to it as heaven. But as we read through the Bible, we find that there are three heavens. Yeah. The first heaven refers to our atmosphere. Jesus is talking and he talks about the birds of heaven. Does he mean the birds of heaven where God dwells? No. You know, someone might read that and they say, well, there's going to be birds in heaven. Now, that's not what Jesus was talking about. When he's talked about the birds of heaven, he's talking about the birds in our atmosphere. So we talk about heaven in the first heaven, the atmosphere. The second heaven refers to outer space. In the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, throughout many of the books in the Bible, we see it talking about the stars of heaven. Now, are those stars in our atmosphere? No. Do you realize that our sun is just an average star in size? There are some stars that are a hundred times larger. A hundred times larger. If we had any of those, those stars in our atmosphere, then what would happen? Well, it's just not going to happen. But it refers to the stars in heaven. That's, that's the second heaven. And then you have the third heaven. The third heaven refers to where God dwells. In fact, this will help you to understand what Paul wrote in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse number 2. Go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse number 2. Paul says, I know a man in Christ. Who do you think the man he knows in Christ is? Who do you think he's talking about here? Himself. I know a man in Christ. You can't know anyone any better than knowing yourself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. That's a literal translation there, third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. Now, let me kind of tell you the story of what happened here. Paul was stoned. And if you remember the story in Acts where he was stoned, they drug him out of the city. They thought that he was dead, but he came back alive. That's the story that Paul is talking about He says, I know a man in Christ, and 14 years ago, he was caught up to the third heaven. In other words, he was caught up to where God dwells. I can't tell you whether it was in the body or it was out of the body. All I know is I was there where God dwells. I walked in heaven. I saw it, and then I came back. That's what he's talking about. So the Bible speaks of three heavens. It talks about the first heaven, which is the atmosphere, the second heaven, which is actually outer space where all the stars and the planets are. And then it talks about the third heaven. So when we're going through the Bible and it refers to heaven, we always have to determine which heaven is it talking about. Now, here in Genesis chapter 1, he says he calls the firmament heaven. What he means is he called this atmosphere heaven. But he's talking about the first atmosphere. Does that make sense? So, on day two, God created an atmosphere able to sustain life. Plant life, animal life, human life. And of course, as I've already told you, this water vapor ceased to exist after the flood during Noah's day. So now, all we have, troposphere, stratosphere, mesosphere. Day three, I'm doing good. Turn to verses 9 through 13. Before I do that, did I make that simple enough? Go back and read those verses. Take out the word firmament, rakia, right above it space. If you just use the word space, everything makes sense when you read it. All right. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together the waters called he sees. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And of course... Jews are going to follow this timetable. So again, we see the same timetable. Evening is first. So when the sun sets, the day begins. Now, up to this point, water covered the entire earth. Wow. Even after it was divided, even after. God came on the second day and he took the space and he put it in the middle of the waters and then he allowed it to divide the waters and one became water vapor above the earth and one continued to be water upon the earth. What we need to understand that even when it was di- after it was divided, half of it became water vapor surrounding the earth but the other half still covered the entire earth. There was no dry land at this time. So on the third day, God said, let the waters under the heaven. What does that mean? Under the firmament, under the space that God has created. Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. Now, when this says, let the water be gathered together in one place, it doesn't mean that there was one huge ocean. Because in verse number 10, he called the places where the waters gathered Seas. The word seas is plural. More than one. So there were more than one places where the water gathered. Does that make sense? There were more bodies of water than just one huge ocean. Does that make sense? So when it says the water was gathered together in one place, it simply means that the water no longer covered the entire earth. Instead, it was contained to certain areas, to certain seas. Now, what made the dry land appear, and what made the water drain to the lower areas? Does anyone know? Well, God said. Okay, God said. But what made it do that? Well, turn to Psalms chapter 104, verses 5 through 9, and let's find out. Because God gives us a more detailed picture of what took place on this third day. Notice what it says. You placed the world on its foundation so it would never be moved. You clothed the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. Now, what's this telling us? It's telling us exactly what Genesis chapter 1 said. At this time, the water covered the entire earth and there was no dry land. Psalms 104 is telling us that. Then it goes further. At your command, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, it hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. Then you set a firm boundary for the seas so they would never again cover And even though it doesn't say it, in the Hebrew, it implies it, never again cover the entire earth. But I want you to notice that at the time this is talking about, the waters covered the entire earth. But at God's command, mountains moved and valleys sank, and the waters drained to the lower areas that God had prepared for them. Now, I just happened to meditate on this as I was studying, and I was thinking, wouldn't it have been neat? And it's hard for me not to get emotional. To be there on the third day and to see God do this. And all of a sudden, you see these mountains all over this earth. They begin to rise. And then as these mountains are rising, you're seeing these valleys. And you've got to remember, it says, And at your thunder... Now, when God came down on Mount Sinai, it sounded like thunder. And so God is speaking and commanding this to happen. These mountains are rising up. Valleys are forming. And this water is going to these places that God has decreed. Man, can you imagine seeing that take place? What an awesome God we serve. And in verse number 10, God names the dry land earth. And he calls the great bodies of water seas. So at this point, the physical structure of the earth is finished, and the basic dwelling places for the various life forms are now complete. You have the skies for the birds, and we're not even talking about the oxygen that's now there for all of of life. But we have the sky for the birds, we have the large bodies of water for the sea creatures, and now we have dry land for plants. Animals And the pinnacle of God's creation What would that be? Man Man The creature that's going to be made In the image of God The creature that God has created To be An eternal being The creature that will either spend eternity with God Or separated from God But all of this is being created In order for The earth to be inhabited. And so now that all of the physical structure. All of the basic dwelling places are now complete. Now it's time for life to appear. Because God created the earth to be inhabited. Look at Isaiah chapter 45 verse number 18. For thus saith the Lord that creates the heavens. God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. So from the very beginning, we see that the whole purpose of God creating the earth that we live on is for it to be inhabited. So at this point, God commands the earth to sprout vegetation. It's time for life to come. Look at verse number 11 again, Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass. The herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Whose seed is in itself itself upon the earth and it was so. Now, there's something I want you to notice here. The creation of plant life is not ex nihilo. What does that mean? It's not created out of nothing. Instead, God does something very unusual here. And he's only going to do it this one time. God empowers the earth with generative capacity. And the reason I say that is because the Hebrew verb to bring forth, dasha, is written in the heifel stem which is causative. So if you translated verse number 11 literally, this is the way it would read. Let the earth cause vegetation to shoot forth. Now, Let me put stress on a different part of this sentence. Let the earth cause vegetation to shoot forth. So what this is saying is that the earth is the thing that caused the vegetation to sprout. But it was at God's command. Now, from this point on, all other life forms will be created or made by God alone. Now, why is this different Anyone know? Why, when it comes to all other life forms, God will have to either create it or he'll have to make it. But here, God could command the earth to bring forth plants. Anyone know? What separates us from plants? What separates animals from plants? Breath, life, spirit. God's going to have to create ex nihilo, spirit, for the animals, for humans. But here, it's not that way. Now, I'm not going to take it any further. I'm not going to tell you what I think that means. I just let the scriptures speak for itself. But I thought I should point this out. Because God commanded the earth itself to sprout vegetation. And the earth caused, according to the hyphal stem, caused these plants to come forth. Now, what's interesting is that the vegetation has the innate ability to reproduce. Each plant already has its seed in itself, and it's able to reproduce itself. But, he continually says this, after its own kind. In other words, each type of plant... Has its own unique structure of DNA. And can only reproduce after its kind. And the same thing is going to hold true for the animals. All living organisms reproduce after its own kind. Now there's going to be a lot of room for variations. And here's what's kind of interesting. When you go to the book of Genesis. Here's what you'll notice. You can literally breed within its own kind. Adam's job was to take care of the Garden of Eden. If he did not cultivate it and take care of it, then guess what happens? This law of entropy would have came in and left to its own. It would not produce the best. But what you did was you came in and you made sure with selective breeding that you get the best. You could even create these various types within its own kind. In fact, when we study the the story of Jacob... Jacob tells his father-in-law, he says, you know, I've worked for you. I've done all these things. I think it's time for me to have my own wages, and I think that I need to have my own herd. And so his father-in-law says, hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, because his father-in-law is not as smart as Jacob. I don't mean that bad, but he's not. He says, You're going to get all of the animals that have, and he gives this, uh, uh, some of them are speckled, and then he's going to change it so many times. But the reason he does that is because he thinks, oh, they won't produce very many of those. But Jacob understands breeding. And he says that he made them breed in front of the poplars. What that means is he made pens, he made corrals. And what he did was he took the ones that were specifically breeding and create these type. And the father-in-law is just scratching his head and he says, Wait a minute, his herds are growing and mine are not. And so he comes to Jacob and says, We've got to change this. And then he says, Yours will be, and he does that. So what does Jacob do? He starts breeding this type. Why? Because God created these things to have seed and has a unique DNA. And it's able to reproduce after itself. And there's much variation within its kind, but it can't go out of its kind. Does that make sense? Verse 13. In the evening and the morning were the third day. Now, next week, we'll study the fourth, fifth, and sixth day of creation. And, of course, the sixth day of creation, we're going to get to the pinnacle of creation, which is the creation of man.